Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Network Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. And today's guest is John Lobel to talk about his book, Louis Kahn, Architecture as Philosophy. John graduated University of Pennsylvania and is a professor of architecture at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, John, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today, and welcome to the show. Brian, thank you for having me. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Uh, Yeah, I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island, and uh, my mother observed that I was good in art and good in math and science and said, I'm not paying for you to go to college and be an English major and get a job at a gas station. You're gonna study architecture. So I didn't get into I didn't get into a lot of schools, but I got into University of Pennsylvania. And who knew that it was gonna be the one of the great schools of architecture of the twentieth century. Louis Kahn's medical towers are going up outside my dorm when I got there. And he had just finished uh, the Salk Research Institute when I left. And my teachers included Besai. I didn't take Khan's studio, but I attended his lectures and juries. So my teachers included, besides Khan, Robert Venturi, Denise Scott Brown, G. Holmes Perkins, Bob Geddes, and uh, Edmund Bacon, the great city planner. And their ideas formulated in my mind. Something that I was even thinking about whilst before architecture school. And I approached the dean and asked if I could do an independent research master's degree. And he said, yes. And so that was on architecture and structures of consciousness, which you'll find that title for my thesis and added material on Amazon. And I'm very interested in how there's this interplay between our consciousness and our culture and our culture, our arts as manifestations of culture in form. So um, if you ask me who my mentors are, I'd say besides those architectural figures I just mentioned, Oswald Spengler and um, Marshall McLuhan. And I'd say their, their work has, uh, underlay what I've done for decades ever since school. Very interesting and impressive. That's uh, and, and I assume very an intense curriculum with all of them larger than life architects teaching. Well, you know, it's interesting at the time, I, I didn't relate too well to Philadelphia and I kept trying to transfer to Columbia because I figured, you know, it would be the same except it would be in New York. I've been a city. I mean, here was it was the era of um, Wild Strawberries by Bergman, La Dolce Vita, um, uh, Breathless, 
all these great foreign films, and they were, I had to go to New York to see them. Um, so who knew, you know, <laughs> what I was in the middle of, and it sort of unfolded later. Absolutely. And so, you know, the book was very interesting. I think most of us who have gone through any kind of architectural program, we know who Louis Kahn is, but I know there's quite a bit that I wasn't aware of in the book. And so I'd like to start off with, you know, I think I, along with a lot of people, probably mostly associate him with kind of the modernist movement. And so it's certainly part of his work, but you, you go into a lot of detail on quite a bit of the the variations and almost some of the things he rejects from that movement, I think a lot of us kind of associate him with. You know, I'm going to say something that, you know, since architecture is a religion, and so you can get excommunicated for being an apostate. Uh, so you, one has to be careful, but um, don't tell anybody, but Louis Kahn is a Beaux-Arts architect. And, uh, I I'm tempted to to do a, uh, an article about that at some at some point, but how I got into this, I didn't think that much about Khan. Uh, I mean, you know, I was exposed to him at school. Uh, we all attended his juries, and then just before he died, he gave he gave his last and best lecture, and it happened to be at Pratt where I teach, and somebody happened to tape it and save the tape. And so when Kahn died in um, when did he die? 1974, I guess, I wrote a short piece. You know, I, I was, everybody in the art and architecture world knew who I was in New York. I wrote a piece, I think, for um, Art in America. And I referred to, very short, like two paragraphs on Kahn. And I referred to him as a spiritual master. And that just got rejected. And so I sent it to, yeah, I sent it to a colleague and she said, you have not made the case. So I said, yeah, that's right. You know, I really, yeah, I can't, you can't just say that. You have to show it. And so I gave it some thought. And after some time, it became apparent. Well, let me say, everybody by then respected Khan's buildings. And his stature has grown since then uh, even more. But Khan also was, uh, how to put it, a spiritual poet. And he would say things like, uh, well, let me just start here. I felt, first of all, joyous. I felt that which joy is made of. And I realized that joy itself must have been the impelling force, that which was there before we were. And somehow joy was in every ingredient of our making. Now, <clears throat> Khan would say, talk about silence and light. He'd talk about order. He would um, say things like, architecture has no presence. Ooh, what does that mean? Uh, well, I happen to know what it meant. <laughs> Because I had spent years after getting to New York studying mythology with Joseph Campbell, uh, Tibetan Buddhism with Chungun Trumpa Rinpoche, the first Tibetan master to come to the West, uh, Tai Chi and Taoism with uh, Chung Meng Cheng, the 
on whose form most modern Tai Chi is based. And Khan's philosophy had very strong parallels to these other traditions, which I was probably the only architect who knew. There would be one other. One of my roommates was a student of, of uh, Rinpoche, one of my architect roommates. Khan wrote very little, but he talked all the time. And his lectures would get transcribed and put in the back of Japanese magazines. So that was about all we had of his writing. Ricky Saul Werman did a collection of his writing, but nobody was interpreting it. And until Jurgela did the book, uh, Louis Icahn, Jurgela and Metta. So if you want to get into Kahn's philosophy, that's strongly recommended. But anyway, it became apparent to me that Kahn was not just waxing poetic, but saying something very profound. What I just read about joy, there's two philosophical positions of this creation. Does spirit come from within or from without? So in the biblical tradition, God molds uh, the first human in clay and it's dead material. And then God breathes the spirit of life into it. So spirit comes from without. In Eastern traditions, in Shintoism, Taoism, spirit is already in all things. Spirit comes from within. Khan's taking a position about that. It's a major position about the two, the two major global philosophical traditions. And no one's ever understood or said that. I realized I was in an exceptional position to do so uh, because of my <clears throat> strong background in Eastern thought, as well as having spent seven years at the University of Pennsylvania hanging out with Khan and listening to him and studying with people like Jurgala who were very influenced by him. So I wrote a book called Between Silence and Light, Spirit in the Architecture of Louis I. Kahn. It was published by Shambhala in 1979, has been continually in print ever since. And I'm very flattered that architects all over the world still know this book. I get students from China who say, you know, this is what turned me on to Khan in China. So oh, very nice. Uh, what the book does is has sort of breaks. I took all of Khan's lectures and edited them into the ideal perfect Khan lecture. And then it's very beautifully presented with photographs. And then I do a commentary explaining it. Well, immediately upon finishing that book in 1979, I said, I've got to do a book on his buildings. Because people, you know, they talk about monumentality. He's exactly not monumental. <laughs> monumentality is the preservation in form of uh, traditions that you want to keep alive. And so Beaux-Arts architecture is monumental in that it wants, it says we are descendants of Rome and we are stating as much through our use of these Roman forms of the orders and the domes and etc. That's exactly not what Khan is doing. Khan talked about monumentality and uh, in a famous 1947 essay 
and said, we need a new monumentality, the monumentality of the school, the hospital, and the daycare center. Well, it didn't take long for him to realize how lame that was. Uh, And all of a sudden, the word monumentality never appeared again in his writing. And instead, he started talking about order. So monumentality is how our architecture, our culture, and ourselves are rooted in the past. Order is about how we're rooted in ourselves. Very tricky concept. How are you rooted in yourself? Well, that's what Taoism can understand. And uh, so I, uh, I said, well, you know, people don't understand what Khan's doing in his buildings any more than they understood what he was doing in his uh, verbal philosophy. So I had it in mind for years to write this book. And eventually I had a sabbatical about uh, 15 years ago. I said, you know what? I'm just going to sit down and write the book. And I did. Sent it to all the publishers. Nobody picked up on it. And so it sat around for 15 years. Is <laughs> so that right? Finally, uh, I said, you know, I got to look at this again. <laughs> and I contacted a friend who knew, you know, like, tell you a secret. I'm 78 years old. And as my father, my late father once put it, everybody I know is dead. <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> so I said, Jesus, I don't even have any contacts anymore. I used to know everybody and, you know, all the publishers, I knew all the magazine editors and et cetera. <laughs> but somebody said, you want to send the book to Alan Rapp at Monticelli. I did. And you've seen it. So we made it, we finally made it happen. And what I do in this book is look at what I think are Khan's five most important buildings. And I left out, everybody would expect to see uh, the capital of Dhaka because it's right. beautifully featured in Nathaniel Khan's movie, My Architect. Yes. And uh, But I left that out because A, I haven't been there. I haven't seen it. And B, Khan did not oversee the finishing of the building. And I think it really gets, um, the details are rather poor in the finishing. Um, But anyway, uh, I I do five of his buildings. And I, the point of the book is how the buildings present Khan's philosophy. So if we say philosophy is the attempt to understand who we are, what our world is, and how the two relate. That would be a definition of philosophy. I like to tease my students. They say, there's only one philosophical question. Who are we and what are we doing here? And I say, the rest of what you've had in your philosophy courses is a waste of time. That's the only question. And philosophy addresses that, but so do the arts. So does literature, painting, sculpture, theater, etc. And certainly architecture, which we know is the mother of the arts. So how are Khan's buildings presenting who we are and what are we doing here? And here's the key part. A lot of our architectural writing, history, theory, come from historians, art historians. And... Uh, they look at a building the way you may look at a painting. In other words, how does it look? What Absolutely. Do you, how, do the, how do the proportions, the forms, 
Well, yeah, but there's, it's also, you experience the building, you live in the building. You, we are, as Jurgala like to put it, Romaldo Jurgala, one of Khan's uh, colleagues, um, people are born, grow up, live and die in our buildings. And right. how, what, what does the building have to tell us to say about what that means, what our lives means, what they are? And the vocabulary the architect has to do that is not only proportion and the stuff the art historians talk about, but the materials and how they're put together. So I like to say the way Khan puts the building together is his philosophical statement about who and what we are. Absolutely. And you actually, there's actually a, quote, a great quote in there that I, I personally enjoy myself of Khan talking about the fact that, you know, art cannot be art unless it's work and not something abstract. And so you kind of touched upon it where if an art historian is looking at a building, they may be focusing on what it looks like, but there's quite a bit more dimensionally to it. Right. It's, it's actually lived in. So um, Khan begins every building famously with the question, what does this building want to be now? Uh, we can unfold from that again and in time, <laughs> another 20 minutes. Uh, first of all, uh, there are two big problems with that statement. So a little quick, what, what's difficult, what's questionable about that statement? About asking, what does the building want to be? Right. Well, particularly because he did a lot of institutional work, in my mind, it kind of comes up to the fact that the user's are sort of dictating things they may not be understanding of that building. Well, that, that would come later. But to, to make it much more simple, it's a building. How can it want anything? <laughs> well, it's not want things. I overthought it. All right. Right. And number two, it doesn't exist yet. You haven't even designed it. Absolutely. So something that doesn't exist that's inanimate wanting something. So as, as you figure that out, that unfolds an entire philosophy. If the building is eventually going to exist, it now, before we design it, exists in the realm of potential. Right. That's the realm of silence. Silence and light. Khan is talking about potential and realization. So in the realm of potential, the building is wanting to come into realization and then the next thing is, as you brought up, about the institution. So let's say it's the school. Right. Um, the building wants to, what does the school want to be? It, well, let's oversimplify here and start with, it wants to be a place where it's good to learn. Right. Well, show me one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would agree. In New York, uh, <laughs> when uh, I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island, and my parents returning from the New Deal, in Washington in the 1950s, they were New Yorkers. They wanted to live in New York, in Greenwich Village. And they went to, uh, looked at some townhouses, looked at the school that we would, my sister and I would be in and saw bars on the windows. So I'm not sending my kids to a prison. <laughs> and we ended up on Long Island. Well, but then what does learn mean? Is a school a place where one is acculturated into one's culture? 
or is a school a place where one finds one's own inner unique self and learns to manifest it? Both are valid. Maybe your school would be a combination of both. But those are the questions you've got to ask. And so now, if I'm on a jury and I'm looking at a student's school, I'm going to say, what's your notion of education? How do I see that in your building? So, and then how do you do that? Well, you do that with, you know, as I like to students uh, ever since our day can talk a good building, <laughs> but we got to see it in the, in the, in the, in the, in the building, in the model, in the drawings. And the vocabulary through which the architect says that is concrete, brick, steel, glass, details. In other words, uh, a novelist doesn't say, okay, I have a great idea. Now I turn it over to a hack to do the words. No, right. the words are the medium through which the ideas are expressed. The brick, steel, concrete, glass, corridors, halls are the vocabulary through which what this building wants to be comes into manifestation. So I believe that um, Khan's buildings, maybe even to a fault, were very didactic. In other words, they're not just good buildings, but they're telling us how a building should be made, how it should be put together. And um, it's in that how it's put together that he expresses himself. And that's a great point, and it's it's something I found very interesting. As I said, you know, we a lot of us think of the modernist movement, you know, respecting material, whereas Kant has kind of a literal principle of honoring the material. And then you have some great examples that I, you know, you mentioned the Barcelona Pavilion, a building I've always admired. You know, it doesn't actually have a flat roof. It has a very thick roof that's just tapered to trick us to think it's a flat roof. Whereas Khan, like I said, he uses the word honor, not respect for that exact thing. He really does want to be a literal construction and show us. So, you know, I think Mies is great for the reason, but certainly not for revealing the technology of the building. The columns are fake, the walls are fake, right. and the roof is fake. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Now, what Mies is doing is saying in this building, as you relate to, okay, the walls in the Barcelona Pavilion are concrete block, and then they're skinned with uh, sheets of uh, marble. Yes. You know, the stones. And he wants to show that the modern tungsten carbide saws can cut those sheets. Today we use water jets. But um, he wants to show us what the technology can do, the largest possible sheets of glass. He couldn't chrome plate his column, but he could cover them with, um, and he couldn't do them in stainless steel because they didn't have it then, but he could cover them with thin sheets of chrome. Yes. So we have the experience of 20th century industrial materials, but we're not uh, in a building exhibiting um, how it's put together. Same thing, and I also describe in the book 
uh, Corbu puts together the Villa Savoie. How the yes. hell is that long window supporting the wall above it? <laughs> you know, right. You would never be able to figure out how <laughs> Villa Savoie works. Um, you know, by looking at it. I, I agree. And yeah, that's a great point you make where, you know, you have the sections that kind of explain that I'm not going to say trick, but you know, they wanted to show us something, but as you said, you have to figure out what they did. And you actually go into detail about the fact, you know, I think again, anyone who went through enough architecture school can probably quote Corbusier's five points. And you kind of go into detail about how Khan kind of rejected quite a few of them. Yeah. And, See what I'm if you elaborate on that a little bit. Thing, what, what bothered Khan mostly was the column. Now, right. columns are very important for Khan, but what Corbu meant by the column being one of the five points is that in modern architecture, the thick, heavy wall, 20 feet on center, which is what you could span or whatever it's going to be, um, define the spaces. But once you have steel or concrete columns, they hold up the ceiling and the walls can now go anywhere you want. Well, what happens is Corbu imagines the columns become points. In other words, they disappear. And um, Khan says, no, the columns define the structure and the structure should be part of what gives the building its order. So that Structure becomes ordering. I want to say one other thing. Um, Khan's approach is one of essences. And by that, uh, what is the essence of school? What does school want to be? And Khan says, you, you want to find the order of school. And then he says, you can find the order of anything, including the brick. And then we get the famous quote, you say to brick, what do you want? And brick says, I like an arch. And you say to brick, Arches are expensive, and I can put a concrete lintel over an opening. What do you think of that brick? And brick says, I like an arch. So again, the brick, inanimate thing, is wanting to be an arch. So is Khan a weirdo? Well, let's look at some other traditions. Let's start with, let's go to Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright says, what would be the honor of the brick? That in the brick, which makes the brick a brick. In other words, there is something there, an essence, an essentialness, that then gathers to itself redness, hardness, squareness. Uh, so Franklin Wright is expressing the exact same thing. And then Wright, Wright's mentor, his Liebermeister, <coughs> was Louis Sullivan. Sullivan, in his last book, has a diagram in the frontispiece of a seed split open. Like imagine you split open a peanut. There's that little piece there that's the germ. That's the part that's going to grow. And Sullivan says, the germ is the real thing, the seat of identity. Within its delicate mechanism lies the will to power, the function which is to seek and eventually to find its full expression and form. So now, if we say form follows function, Sullivan and Wright did not mean that the corridor has to be wide enough for everybody to get through it during a fire drill. That's not what they're talking about at all. And Sullivan says, I do not mean the crude function of the materialists. He's talking about something totally different. He's 
there's an exact parallel between the three of them. They use different terms, uh, like wanting to be in will to power, uh, but they're saying the same thing. The building, the material has in it a will. Now, most modern architects feel this way. And so modern architecture in general says steel is good intention. It wants to be long, thin, and attenuated. Concrete is good in compression. It wants to be massive and squat. And so most modern architects would say that. And the great um, engineer of concrete, who's the Italian concrete engineer? <laughs> uh, you're talking about Calatrava? Nervi. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, Nervi. So um, Nervi deliberately makes his sailboat out of concrete to show it can do what it shouldn't be able to do. <laughs> right. You know, and then somebody even made an airplane wing out of reinforced concrete. Is that right? Just to show that it can do what it shouldn't be able to do. Oh, very interesting. I know you talked about the the boat in the book. And and so you've you've hinted at it a few times. So yeah, so you know, Khan has a lot of great quotes of him talking to inanimate stuff. You know, he's very philosophical. And so you have, you know, a large chapter of the book focused on the five buildings you've identified that kind of embody a lot of what he's talking about. Now, I understand we could do an episode to each building, so maybe this is a very nebulous question, but could you maybe elaborate a little more on, you know, how does Salk Institute and the Exeter Library, you know, how, how do they kind of embody everything you've discerned about in the book? Yeah, let's take Exeter. Um, that's a great example. Um, so in the medical towers at the University of Pennsylvania around 1957 to 61, roughly. Um, the, the towers themselves, which are uh, stairwells and air ducts, are poured in place concrete. The building is precast, the medical towers, most of it is precast concrete. It's precast, pre stress, post tension. So we're going to have time to go and buy the book. It's all explained. But right. <laughs> um, the towers were poured in place and then sheathed in brick. Now, brick is a traditional Philadelphia material, and brick is actually required of every building on the Penn campus. It's an aesthetic unity rule. Right? Kahn was later ashamed of having done that. He said, I used the brick as a veneer, like paint. He says, bricks built Rome. You know, they have no business being shortchanged with a job of protecting concrete from the weather. So in a way, we can say Exeter Library, library at Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, is Khan's atonement to brick. <laughs> so the building is a brick donut on the outside. Inside is a concrete donut. And then inside is the great open space reminiscent of a, a Roman bath. So not only is the exterior wall, you look at it and you say, oh, okay, it's a brick veneered exterior wall. Oh my God, it's a brick wall. Now it's not really brick, it's brick block brick because masonry construction is, um, so you should more accurately say it's masonry. Some of it is solid brick but others is brick space, block brick. 
and you always need a space in a masonry wall to handle moisture. So the outer, not only is the outer 12 feet all brick, but the inner columns 12 feet in are brick. And then the beam spanning from the outer wall to the brick column, those beams are brick. So it's truly brick. And then it's poured concrete for the stacks, the bookshelves. And then the, the center has this great space with this crossing beams that are 19 feet deep. Uh, Khan really overdoes structure because for Khan, the, well, let's go back to, I love to digress, pardon my style. Uh, let's go no back worries. to the um, Yale Gallery, uh, his first major building, mm-hmm. and done about five years before the medical towers. And there, the columns look like they could be holding up a 20-story building. It's like a four-story building. Right. But for Khan, the columns not only hold up the ceiling, the columns are providing architectural order. So the structure is ordering as well as supporting. And it's this integration, I think, that makes Khan's, uh, contributes to Khan's work being so rich. Absolutely. And, and as I've said, you know, we could, there's, we could go into a whole episode for each building, a very in-depth, great, you know, discussions on each building. And so before we kind of go into my, you know, closing, you know, I was just wondering if maybe, you know, you could tell us, you know, what you've been working on since what's maybe in the future. You've sort of hinted at a few other writings coming up. Yeah. So, uh, go to Amazon and put in John Lobel, L-O-B-E-L-L. And I, I, a couple of years ago, I did a book called Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born. And it looks at the relationship of consciousness and culture and how they generate each other. And I think it's the only book that understands creativity, if I can say <laughs> so myself. Uh, I mentioned my architectural thesis, Architecture and Structures of Consciousness, that's also a book on Amazon. I did a book of my collected, you know, when I got out of school, I started reviews. I wrote one of the first reviews of Venturi's Complexity and Contradiction. He got me the uh, the galley so I could get a head start on it before oh, wow. the book came out. So you'll find my architectural writing for the past 50 years collected in a book called Notes on Architecture. And I'm interested in mythology and particularly how it's expressed in movies. So there's a book called uh, Movies and Movies, Myths and Archetypes. So those are all by me. Right now, I'm working on a book called The Philadelphia School, 1955 to 1965. So there's this thing, The Philadelphia School. I happen to have been there. I was really lucky. And uh, it's typically associated with Kahn and Venturi. Oh, the Philadelphia School, Kahn and Venturi. Well, it was much, much more than that. It was a unique con- uh, coming together of the school, the city, and the profession. So <clears throat> the school was being reborn under G. Holmes Perkins. Up until 1950, it remained a Beaux-Arts school. And uh, the students coming out of um, 
uh, ex-GIs going to school after serving in the military uh, at Penn discovered, what, what are we being taught here? And so they would two, do two versions of every project, one for their teachers and one they'd create among themselves. And finally went to the president of the university and said, this has got to be fixed. And Perkins put together this incredible school. So the school was under rebirth. And then Philadelphia had become quite decayed and corrupt. And they had, a, uh, around that time, a reform mayor, a reform government, civic councils, a great city planning commission being led by Edmund Bacon. And so the city was being renewed. Bacon, when he did uh, ideal proposals for parts of the city, you know, like downtown, the waterfront, et cetera, would get the young faculty members from the school and then the profession itself, Con, Venturi, uh, Bob Geddes, were all starting their firms. And they were the faculty at the school. So the profession, the school, and the city were triangulated in a way that I think has never been accomplished before. Certainly, it could never be done in New York because <laughs> New York is just way too big. Um, and uh, during this time, the New Republic magazine did an article on Philadelphia and referred to the architecture school as the intellectual heart of the city, not the University of Pennsylvania, the School of Architecture. Hmm. So it was a remarkable moment. And uh, so I'm at work on a book on that. Very interesting stuff. Uh, we'll have to talk again about some of these other projects as well. Cool. Anytime. So... I want to thank everyone again for listening. The book is Louis Kahn, Architecture is Philosophy. So thank you and have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye.